Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 173rd video cast, 163rd podcast for the week ending February 9th, 2023. We'll do the quick media. We've got a lot to cover, and then we'll do the ask me anything questions, uh, which are becoming more and more each week, and it seems to be where a lot of people are getting tremendous value. So we'll keep at it with that. Um, first off, I'd like to thank Mike Teak and Ann Berry for having me on public.com to discuss the Fed, etc. We'll get into that a little later. I want to thank Subham Batra and Johan Cherian for including me in their Reuters article, as well as Ankika Biswas and Meta Singh for including me in theirs uh, the day before, and Lucia Mutakani for including me in their article uh, on last Friday. So thanks for that. want to thank, by the way, one of the key benefits of this podcast, videocast, has been the amazing people that I've been meeting and the friends that I've been making along the way and obviously the investors and partners that we picked up. Uh, but first off, I'd like to thank Philippe, who uh, has been a longtime listener, and he uh, reached out and invited me to dinner with his friend Tom Lee. For those of you who uh, know the podcast well, we, we often quote Tom's work. Uh, he does a great job over at Fundstrat. They have good research over there. You should check it out. So that was a really nice thing. Thanks to Philippe for that. Um, and then um, took a couple. So it was a busy couple days in the, in the city and uh, took a couple investor meetings and want to welcome the new money that came on board this week. Now we can start to take advantage of some of the ideas we were alluding to last week. Uh, very excited for that. Uh, also enjoyed um, um, meeting some people uh, that have also reached out from the podcast. Arthur, very nice to meet you. And, uh, and obviously, uh, Philip came in from Dubai. If you remember last summer, we interviewed Philip. Uh, he runs, uh, he's the head, the head. He runs all the investments, uh, for Chris Chandler of Legatum, uh, with his team. And, uh, if you remember the story, the Chandler brothers compounded $10 million into 5 billion. We covered that in an hour interview. Hopefully we'll have him back soon, but uh, it's lovely to see him again for lunch while he was in town. That was phenomenal uh, and exchange ideas. And then the next night, uh, I was at the same restaurant that we went for dinner with Philippe, uh, which was Cucina Alba and uh, Lydia Moynihan, who is a journalist at the New York Post, uh, who I'm very grateful she has included me in some of her articles. She's starting a new column at the New York Post, a business column called On The Money. So you can sign up here. It's free. Just go to email.newyorkpost forward slash on dash the dash money uh, and you can get that. And what a party the Post threw to launch that at Cucina Alba. And for those of you out-of-towners, that's become kind of a new spot, uh, pretty incredible place. And um had a chance to finally meet in person the legend in the business, uh, Charlie Gasparino. All of you know him from Fox Business. Before that, he was on, on CNBC. <clears throat> so, uh, we were talking about Rayos. I, I got lucky, uh, you know, as a, as an Irish guy to go once, uh, in my lifetime. He's like, yeah, you know, I don't go there that much. I, I haven't been there in two months. I mean, he's like, he's a legend. He goes whenever he wants. Uh, but really an honor to meet him and, uh, Ellie Terrett. Uh, by the way, any of you who uh, are into crypto, she's become one of the key voices uh, in the journalistic community in the crypto world, among other things. She knows markets like the back of her hand, but crypto in particular, um, follow her on Twitter, Eleanor Tarrett, 
E-L-E-A-N-O-R-T-E-R-R-E-T-T. Anything and everything, crypto, regulation, the whole thing. Uh, she's a rock star. She's Charlie's producer uh, over at Fox Business. And she gave me my first break on TV about three and a half, four years ago. Um, and so if it wasn't for her, so I'm very, very grateful. And uh, and that's that. Then I got to meet at the same party, Jackie DeAngelis. Uh, she's been at Fox Business. She came from CNBC. She has a new show with Taylor Riggs and um, a gentleman uh, uh, as well called The Big Money Show. So definitely check that out at uh, 1 o'clock on Fox Business. And then the best bank journalist in the business, uh, Carlton English over at Barron's. And if you remember, when no one wanted banks uh, in summer of 2000, and we were pounding the table and talking about how all the excess reserves would come back as earnings. She's the only journalist who got that right and published on it. And by the time anyone else was publishing on it, the stocks were already up 100%. So kudos to Carlton. She also has her own show on Fox Business with Barron's uh, and a couple of the other journalists over at Barron's uh, called Wall Street Week. Definitely check that out. That's one of my favorites. Then I got to meet Joe Weisenthal, and uh, he runs Bloomberg Odd Lots, which is an amazing podcast. I often post them on the weekend reads uh, on the website when I do every day. I post what I'm reading and what I'm listening to under this category, what I'm reading today. Uh, he's probably there almost every weekend with Tracy Alloway. He runs that podcast. I would definitely check it out. Uh, he always has great guests. Um, earlier this week, I was... Uh, um, listening to um, uh, Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street again. I've read the book many times. And he made this point um, that he studied liberal arts and he feels sorry for people that solely try to quantify everything in the investment business because investment, uh, if you're good at it, is isn't as much an art as it is a science. If, if it was a science all about quantification, you could just rent the highest powered computer, sit back, smoke a cigar, and it would spit money out to you. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but we're going to go right to the quote. I, I brought it in from the audiobook, so listen here. I was on the liberal arts side of Boston College, avoiding all the required math and accounting courses, the normal preparations for business. Instead, I studied metaphysics, logic, and philosophy, along with history, psychology, and political science. Investing in stocks is an art, not a science. People trained to rigidly quantify everything are at a disadvantage. If stock picking could be quantified, you could rent time on the nearest great computer and make a fortune. But it doesn't work that way. And we're back. Um, so I was talking with a very good friend and also a client, and he's done exceptionally well in business, exceptionally well in real estate. I mean, I'm not being hy hyperbolic when I say exceptionally well. One of the smartest guys, if not... Uh, that I know. And, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of chatting and, you know, obviously the year has just been uh, a monster uh, start to the year and everything else. And um, he's like, I, you know, I don't know how you do what you do in the stock market. And I was like, you know, X, Y, Z, tech identity, etc. Um, I said, look, it's very simple. I do exactly what you do in real estate and in business when you buy an asset. I said, the difference is why I like the public markets more than the private markets. If um, if the unemployment rate went up to 7% and you owned 50,000 units in San Antonio, Texas or something like that, 
and uh, the unemployment rate went up. And let's say you bought the units for, you know, $30 million and they were worth $60 million before the uh, unemployment rate shot up to 7% and your vacancy rate went to 12%. Uh, and it was a recession or whatever it was. And someone came to you off that peak valuation of $60 million and said, uh, I'll give you $20 million for it. You know, 66% discount to the value um, you know, a, uh, 33% discount to what you paid, what would you do? And he's like, well, I'd, I'd laugh them out of the room. I said, well, okay. So how's what you do different than what I do? If you had gone to the Alibaba boardroom last fall, when Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and all these groups were saying that Alibaba was uninvestable and you said, listen, board, uh, I've just got a hundred billion dollar credit line from JP Morgan, and I'd like to take Alibaba private uh, at today's valuation, which I think it got down below a hundred. I think it was like 80 for, you know, a couple minutes. Um, and they'd laugh you out of the room. And I said, well, where do you think they'd start to get interested? I mean, would they, would they take a $200 billion offer? Would they take a $300 billion offer? Would they take a $400 billion offer? I don't think you'd even get a meeting in the room until your offer was a half a trillion. And it's trading nowhere near that yet. Uh, and even at a half a trillion, if that board was to approve a deal based on historic performance and prospective performance, what we've been talking about in terms of the cloud and 38% market share and the cloud industry as a whole is going to triple by 2025, uh, and there, and if you follow what happened with Amazon Web Services, their operating margin went all the way up to 29%. So, you know, you're going to have another 66% of operating income three years out just from Ali Cloud alone. But if you went to them for a half a trillion dollars and you had all the financing secured, they would laugh you out of the room. What if you even at a trillion and yet the public markets traded it down to a hundred billion like it was nothing. And at a hundred billion, you couldn't give it away. Uh, so, that's why I love the public markets more than the private markets, because as, as despondent and euphoric as private markets can get, they get nowhere near as despondent and euphoric as the public markets do and serve up opportunities of a lifetime. Another example, you know, Cooper Standard now up, you know, three, three and a half X in just uh, six, seven months. Um, if you had gone to the board in May, I think the stock traded down, literally, it was a $2.5 billion company market cap in 2007 when industry volumes were normalized. Uh, it traded down to a $60 million market cap uh, when we bought a few percent of the company and $60 million. If you had gone into that boardroom with $100 million and said, listen, um, you know, I'd like to take the company private. I'll give you, you know, from 60 million, it would have been a 80% premium. Uh, would you be interested? And the board would have laughed you out of the room. And, and that's why what Peter says is investing is an art, not a science in the sense that you have to be able to dispassionately look at the asset when the rest of the market has lost its mind, you know, is effectively what comes down to it. But also recognize that that despondency in price, not in the assets, the assets don't get despondent. The price of the assets gets despondent from time to time. 
and it gets euphoric from time to time. And the key over time, and you can only get it through experience, is and learn that art is just from seeing thousands of situations. They're not a book you can read. You have to read all the books. That's table stakes stuff. You know, you got to, if you know nothing, get your CFA. That's table stakes stuff. That's not going to make you a great investor. That's going to, that gets you to the table. Experience and time and learning and seeing all these situations. It's why Warren Buffett can do a $5 billion deal with Goldman Sachs in the middle of the worst financial crisis in a 100 years in five minutes without doing any due diligence, without doing anything, because he knows the business, because he's seen it. He's seen it operate through cycles. He knows what the business is, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so that's that. And just keep in mind, despondency and euphoria are your friends, not your enemies. And, and they're only truly available in the public markets. The key is making sure you're buying high quality cash generative assets and you're not buying promises hope and hype which which you know wall street bankers in fairness that their job is to sell that stuff is to sell the future and you know out of every 500 or 1000 they put out you do get the next googles and you, you, you know, not a good week to talk about google but <laughs> fortunately we don't own it uh you do get the next googles but maybe we will soon because that'll get despondent in the next few weeks if they keep screwing up their ai uh, uh launch you know it was, it, it was kind of sad it was called bard is the name of their ai platform to compete with chat GD, gpt I, I i thought maybe they misspelled it to, it should have been barf but uh, that's what happened with their launch when the thing didn't know a simple question. Uh, and now the stock's down, you know, many, many billions of dollars. But they'll get that figured out. They have all the underlying AI. It's just not cheap enough for me yet. But uh, but but perhaps it will be in the coming months. Um, okay, so. Um, okay, the other thing I want to cover really quickly is um, many of you. Uh, we're interested in that UK stock. We're not, we're not going to talk about it publicly because it's already up 50, 60%. Uh, and uh, it's a strong starter position, but it's not a major position for us. However, the CEO of Columbia Sportswear was on CNBC this week. And uh, he was on uh, Jim Cramer's show. And Jim Cramer was like, well, your sales weren't so good here and there. But in Europe, your sales are going through the roof. How come your sales are so strong in Europe all of a sudden? And he named a couple of channels. And one of those channels, I just did a double take because I always have it on in the background, was uh, was the, uh, the company in question. So I'm going to play that now. Enjoy it. Uh, that's not one we're going to spend a lot of time on. Maybe in, Maybe if it gets cheaper... We'll get we'll get reinterested in really sizing up in a material way. Uh, but here you go. Shocked uh, to see those eurozone numbers. They're really extraordinary. See, I'm sorry, the what? Eurozone, very very strong. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Well, you know, our team there has been focusing not only on the biggest customer we have there, which is Intersport International, which is a, a collection of. Um, sporting goods operations, mostly small ones, but it's in, in aggregate, it's a big, big business. That plus the specialty e-com stores like Azos, uh, like Zalando and, and others, and the, the teams have been focused on how we can properly market our products in those kinds of environments and, okay. and do well. And so it, the team is to be to be lauded for, and they've just done a great job. Well, those are great numbers. I can't uh, avoid the fact that it looks like the capital behind you and your right shoulder. So uh, what are you doing there? 
and we're back. Uh, so that's that. The other thing I wanted to talk about, we're working on a major new position uh, that I shared with uh, at, at a couple investor meetings in the last two days. Um, if you haven't read this book or listened to this book called Chip War, The Fight for the Wor- World's Most Critical Technology uh, by Chris Miller. And by the way, Joe Weisenthal of Odd Lots, he actually did a podcast with Chip Miller. He told me, Chris Miller, uh, he told me last night, and I, I had missed that one. So I'm going to find it this weekend and listen. But this book is phenomenal because it goes through the entire history of Silicon Valley, Andy Grove, uh, you know, the 8486, uh, um, uh, uh, kind of, um, underpinnings for modern day data centers, PC, et cetera. The, you know, the fabs in Taiwan, in China, how they've lagged behind the different competition and all the dynamics of all the businesses, who has the monopolies, who has the oligopolies, who has the intellectual capital, where's the future going. And it's basically like a PhD in the semiconductor industry in a few hours, if you listen in a couple of days, if you read it. Um, and that's uh, the um, the backdrop for uh, for one position we're working on. And we'll see if we can get it at the price we want and in the size that we want. Uh, but, um, but money management clients are, are fully aware of this, uh, already. Uh, speaking of which, Biden put semiconductors on the forefront in the State of the Union speech. You may want to review that. He made a couple allusions there. Um, and now on to the, uh, some, some of the news of the week. First and foremost, um, just want to make sure we're getting, we got everything here. Uh, Disney, okay, you saw it up now. I guess it's, uh, buck 15 or 115 or something like that today. If you remember, we were talking about it, uh, in the low 90s and I put this out today. Remember when you couldn't give away Disney stock? If you watched the claim and countdown on Fox Business, you were ahead of the crowd once again. Uh, and that was on December 12th. I was on with Cheryl Cassoni, uh, talking about Disney. You can go ahead and review that. That's been a nice trade. And, uh, after we got in, uh, or we were on this show, uh, you heard about Pelts got in and then you heard about, um, uh, Dan Loeb got in. I think Loeb got in before Pelts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're seeing it more and more as some of these stocks are too cheap. You're seeing activists come in today. It was, uh, Salesforce. We're not involved in that one. Uh, this was an interesting article from, uh, Bloomberg today stock. Uh, and it was basically about this rally has to end because retail optimism returns. Uh, this, they're referring to the AAII sentiment result that we cover every week. So they're showing this anecdote where because one month it went up in 2021 and the crash wasn't over, this is going to be the same thing. It went up one month, the crash is going to be over. But what they're totally missing, and interestingly enough, they cut off, is that more often than not, when these things spike up, they tend to persist for many, many months or years. So I wanted to give you a visual of what this looks like, how they've presented it, like it's going to drop back and roll roll over, which it could certainly happen. Or more likely, you know, here's 2009. Uh, you saw that it was subdued here. And then when it comes out, it just tends to stay elevated here for a couple of years. Then 2011 and 12, you had this huge drop and then it just stays elevated. 15 and 16 is a better example. This looks a lot more the same way. Uh, you had this double drop, the same type of situation. And then it stayed subdued. It looks felt like forever. And then you got this huge spike as you were coming out of the doldrums. 
and the S&P continue to rally for another year and a half. So after you're in the doldrums and it comes out, it, it can stay elevated for, for a couple of years as the market rallies. Same thing in 2020, it was down and then you get the, the first spike. Uh, and then it stays elevated for a year, year and a half. And I think we're going to see a similar situation. And that's, uh, that's been our base case. I think we're going to see a lot of it in the front half, front, front end loaded because going into the year, everyone said it was going to be the opposite. It was the triple break putt rally into the end of the year, crash as soon as the year flipped over, uh, and then rally the back half of the year. It's been the exact opposite. I think we're going to have a monster. We're going to continue strong in the first half. And then by the time everyone's getting in at or near new highs, that's when the market's going to pull back 8% and grind sideways for the rest of the year and not make any any further gains. That, that's our base case. We're not trying to predict anything, but again, it's an art, not a science. When you've seen these cycles over and over, you start to get a feeling for what will just, you know, uh, markets designed to cause the most pain to the most amount of people at any one point in time. Based on positioning, the most pain, if you remember in October and in December, again, when the market pulled back, we were saying cash levels the highest since the pandemic lows, since the great financial crisis lows, since the tech wreck lows. If you're not a buyer here, you're in the wrong business. Let's, you know, buy high quality stuff that's on sale. Don't buy the pipe dream stuff. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happening. So um, here are some, let's go through some indicators here. The other thing is, you know, bears would say, oh, well, look, uh, you know, people are getting complacent. They're buying calls now and everything else, but that's what happens after the bottom every single time. So the put call ratio spikes at the bottom. Okay. We had this like, like we've never seen before in December. And then it just gradually comes down and stays down as the market rallies. Same thing in 2015 and 2016. This was a spike and then it just gradually comes down and stays down. Same thing in 2011, 2012. You have these spikes and then they gradually come down and stay down. So the fact that people are buying calls and not buying as many puts, they just had a heart attack. These are just aftershocks that you see. October, December, these were heart attacks for most people from an emotional standpoint, which serves up the opportunities to buy the Disneys, to buy the Amazons, to buy more of the Alibabas, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and all the things that we were talking about throughout those. So, uh, but some of these indicators, uh, although they look like they're, you know, if you, if I was to put this on a daily chart, you'd say, oh, Everyone's buying calls. No one's buying puts. We got to go short now and fade this rally, which is what most people are saying. But when you put it in perspective, the big moves always start this way. Um, this hasn't even started. The NASDAQ hasn't even got off the mat yet. You know, if you look at 15 and 16, you had this fake out and then you get this crunch here as just as you're getting out of the doldrums. Uh, same exact thing here. You get this crunch just as you're getting out of the doldrums and then it slowly works its way back up. Look at 11 and 12. Same exact pattern. You get this crunch here and then slowly get out of the doldrums and then you have a year and a half long rallies. So um, we think that could work out in a similar fashion moving forward. Same thing here. Uh, NASDAQ declining issues tricks. You know, it spikes at the bottom and then it comes down. Most people say, oh, look at look at all the complacency. But that's always what happens. It climbs the wall of worry and you get these little checkbacks like you see here, which are nothing in the scheme of things. And the market keeps pushing higher. You get the spike like 2015-16. And then uh, it looks like it's complacent. And it just climbs the wall of worry. Climbs the wall of worry. Same exact thing in 2011-12. Spike. And then it just climbs that wall of worry. So 
Again, it's an art. It's not a science, as Peter Lynch said. But you see these things over and over and over. You get a feel for what's to come. And you position yourself accordingly. And how do you hedge? You hedge by buying the highest quality assets that are at unnatural discounts based on the euphoria despondency uh, mechanism and that just never become available in the public in the private markets because no rational human being would sell these businesses at the prices that the market serves up and where they're as public market participants while most people are selling in the hole and puking taking advantage of those opportunities and there's still plenty of discrete opportunities on a one-by-one -one and company-by-company -company basis skew here you see it's the same thing. Um, no one buys one and two standard deviations insurance after the house is burned down. Um, and that's when you get the rallies. When this gets so low and no one's uh, buying that insurance anymore, the institutions, uh, you're going to get that that trend up. Uh, so those are those. Even the VIX is coming down. Now, most people would say, no, it's still in an uptrend, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but that's the way it calms itself down. You get these little aftershocks as the market climbs the wall of worry over and over and over. Um, this probably more than anything in terms of sentiment is very important. This was a key story in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Uh, the retreat of the amateur investors, a pandemic boom attracted scores of Americans seeking gains. Now that some are backing away, the markets risk losing, losing a key support. The amount of money that they have in the markets is so de minimis. The, the day traders that made up the 2021, 2022, um, that's not a factor. The key is going to be getting the institutional cash off the sidelines, which was at a record low. Risk parity are completely flushed out. They have the least leverage that they've had in years, and they're going to have to chase back in. Uh, and there's, there's billion, you know, tens and tens and tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in risk parity, maybe, maybe, maybe a couple trillion. I'd have to double check that. But this is a story of a young guy who worked his day trading account up to a million and a half dollars. He lost every single penny, and now he's working at a deli for $14 an hour in Las Vegas. Um, and and that's that. He was chasing all of these stories that are, were MOBO stocks and meme stocks and, and didn't take the time to uh, educate themselves in how to invest, uh, balance sheet, cash flow statement, earnings, uh, etc. And that's not a bad thing. Some, some of these guys that blew up, they'll now learn how to do it right. And 10 years from now, they'll be some of the best investors in the business. I mean, that's just, you know, this, this is table stakes. This is, this is tuition. Uh, the, the unfortunate part is some of these guys drop out after freshman year and after sophomore year and they forego the opportunity to make, make a fortune in this business. Um, but a few of them will make it through. Uh, and some of the better ones may, may not have, instinctively may not have gotten caught up in this, this, part of the market, but there may be some that learn from their mistakes and go on to do great things. So, but this is kind of what you see at bottoms. Uh, these, when these guys go back to the deli for $14 an hour, uh, a new bull, bull market is starting. Um, big short in stocks is almost over after $300 billion unwind. Uh, so now what you're seeing here is asset managers and leverage funds, uh, starting to get back in. Now, again, People will say, oh, here we go, you know, fade this because people are getting back in. And it's the same thing every time is once it gets up there, it stays elevated for a long time as everyone waits for the next shoe to drop. That's the big trick. Once you get everyone back in the boat and then it just keeps pushing higher. These, you know, you get these 8 and 10% pullbacks after you get everyone back in the boat. 
but we haven't gotten everyone back in the boat yet. So I think this pushes higher, then it stays elevated for a year or two before we have our next 20% correction uh, from much higher levels. So, um, so anyway, all this data is helpful and just giving you a barometer. Today, what I love to see was Borg Warner sees EV business up 72% in 2023. This this is why Cooper Standard started the day up seven percent before the general indices were were uh, uh, went negative. But um, I think it's still up three three four five uh, three four percent uh, on this, uh, which is really interesting because I was not expecting strong earnings for Q4. Um, uh, but seeing Borg Warner with their EV business, because remember our model is predicated on no EVs and. Uh, the EV is the kicker for us, and they make 20% more margin per EV than they do for ICE. So if this composition continues to turn green, our $5, $6, $7 normalized plus normalized earnings, uh, you know, looking out, uh, you know, three years uh, are going to be con potentially conservative because they're going to have 20% more margin if that composition goes goes to more EV. And... Um, Borg Warner today kind of indicated that that's that's where things are going. They're also an auto supplier, uh, and that bodes very very well for Cooper Standard. So I don't know if we're going to hear about that when they report, but uh, but that could be a, a very positive thing moving forward. The name of the game is take the long view on this. Uh, it really does not make a difference what ha happens to the stock in the short term if it rallies like Borg Warner did off their earnings, you know, seven or ten percent. That's great. Uh, if it falls seven or ten percent, it's immaterial. The, the game is normalized auto production on the IHS numbers. As those go back to 2017 levels, whether it takes two years or three years, as estimated uh, by the industry, um, you know they should be able to earn uh, what they did in 2017, 2018, but maybe 10 or 20 percent more because there'll be a lot more. Uh, EVs in the mix moving forward. So, you know, six, seven, eight dollars, uh, a share. And then the question is, do you assign a trough multiple, which was 10 or a peak multiple? And that's why we see a, a tremendous amount of upside. And that's why we got in it with our basis at 550. And, um, and we're very pleased. So, uh, proved U.S. proved reserves of crude oil increased significantly in 2021. Obviously, near record highs here. You haven't seen proved reserves this high since the 19, uh, early 1970. Uh, so while everyone continues to look at Russia and Ukraine and Saudi Arabia, uh, not only have the proved reserves gone up, but the rig count's gone up to near pre-pandemic levels. Uh, so yes, demand will pick up uh, for sure from China, but there's a lot of storage that they built up when no one else was doing that. Uh, and, um, so again, we, we continue to be short-term agnostic. We do think that some of the natural gas stocks are getting attractive once again. Uh, but, um, not, a, not a lot to do there at the moment, but, uh, that may change soon. Uh, Macau casino stocks shine in post COVID rally as JP Morgan sees headroom for more upside. Okay. So no one wanted these casino stocks when we were talking about them last year, Melco Crown, Las Vegas Sands win on the podcast. So now that they're all up double, okay, here it's right here, thirty to sixty dollars. Now they say there may be upside. I mean, so you can't make this stuff up. Opinion follows trend. That's that's been our theme for the last three plus years that we've been doing this, and uh, many of you are learning that, and you're making lots of money. I get the emails, and we'll cover a couple of them afterwards. Uh, you know, as far as Baba, you know, huge rally. 
100% off the bottom. Everyone got bullish. You have to have the natural pullback to, to take out the late money. Uh, but you should expect pullbacks. I mean, you know, we got the first big pullback. So you had the bottom there uh, early in the year and then a rollover into the fall bottom and then a rollover like in 2015 and 2016 bottom and then a big rollover you had a big overshoot like someone was liquidating obviously in October that was aberrational and that's why we you know our last purchase was at 61 when we put out that 18 point uh uh quote on uh Twitter on the day of why we were buying more um but you know then you get the the first big rally and then you get a big pullback so it would not surprise me at all um, if we got a big pullback, you know, back to, you know, in this case, it was the 13 month moving average, who cares? I mean, you know, so that could be, you know, in the high nineties, mid nineties, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I think maximum pain is up. I think people are still skeptical. So if you keep jamming it up and then you take it back for maybe 140, that, that might be more interesting, but anything's on the table. The, the key is we're not going back to 60. Um, uh, so if you're waiting for that, you're going to be waiting a long time. But maybe in the high 90s, maybe not. Um, um, yeah, and then you had the similar thing in uh, 2019 where you had that first, you know, rally, rollover, and then you get a big rally and a pullback to the blue line. So, you know, where's the blue line now? $95. I mean, that that's a possibility. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, and it also wouldn't surprise me if we kept pushing higher. But just to manage your expectations because – um, I think I can tell based on some of the questions that um, a lot of people missed this and bought up. So now they're going to get punished and um, and then they're going to probably get out here right before it takes off again for the for the really big move, um, you know, which could be parabolic as it, as it has been historically. Um, so, you know, just keep an open mind. You know, I, I would say if it gets into the 90s. Uh, and you don't have as much as you'd like, it's probably a place to, to, to take a look. Uh, if it doesn't, then, you know, hold what you got and enjoy the ride. But the key thing I was sharing with a friend was, look, you know, we've been on the roller coaster. Uh, we've already gone through the hard turns. Uh, we took advantage of them. And now you're kind of into the home stretch in terms of volatility. And now we just enjoy the ride for the rest of the ride. And, and that's going to be, you know, two, three, four years till it gets up to uh, our predetermined level of fair value, which is tremendously higher than where we are now. Uh, and then when everyone gets euphoric and all the people that were saying, never buy China, how could you buy China? When they get excited, just, just, just think of all the people that got super excited about oil last year after all the oil stocks were up 200, 300%. Those are the same people that said you can't buy China. When they're buying China, we're, that's where we're going to be laying off our first tranches. They're like, you know, I watch, I keep this stuff on not only because there's a lot of people I learn from, but there's a lot of people that act as great contra indicators. And you'll learn over time who those people are. Uh, and, and I find that the contra indicators have greater predictive power than the, um, the smart people that are usually right. Uh, so, but you know, the ones that are always wrong, it works a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just go with that. Um, Alibaba test chat GPT rival. So there, you know, the stock's been up the last few days that they're going to do a chat GPT thing. Um, China's economy will grow 5% this year. Fitch rating says in its upgraded forecast. Uh, I think that's conservative. 
and uh, Alibaba stock rises. Okay, so it's doing that. Uh, the, oh, the other thing, last week it was down because they said they were moving their headquarters to Singapore. That was false. They're actually uh, increased. That that was their Lazada subsidiary. They're actually increasing their headquarters in Hangzhou amid more support from local government. Government's now backing them up because they realize consumption is the way back this time versus infrastructure. And that's where they're investing their money, as I covered with Ann Berry on uh, public.com. And our article of the week is the good time stock market and sentiment results with Alan Jackson. Um, great, great song for those of you who know it. And this song covers a couple of themes we want to touch on. First and foremost, people are spending all of their savings right now. That's the bear case. So that's bad. Uh, but as a function of that, they're going back to work and that's good. And that's a key theme that we're going to press on today. Check out the song. It's great. He has the world's, I think he got into the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest line dance in history. Uh, so you'll see that in the video. Um, and, uh, I put a clip in here from the CEO of Yum Brands who, was was uh, on CNBC talking about how it's it's now becoming easy to fill positions and they can do so at reasonable wages. So they're not having that wage pressure anymore. And I think that was evidenced in the jobs report last week. So the main thing that came out of that jobs report was people are now concerned about how much more the Fed's going to have to hike to offset this strength in the economy. Now, there were reasons, there were all these five seasonal reasons why this was this is uh, uh, an aberrational number, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But um, the key is, um, you know, on the one hand, it's good that the job creation shows that the economy is strong and it's been withstanding the tightening that's taken place uh, during the past year. So, th so that's a positive thing. Um on the other hand, the bears are pointing to the fact that people are spending all of their excess savings, and you're seeing that roll over. Um, the savings rate is below pre-pandemic levels. The uh, excess savings are coming down, but they still do have $1.4 trillion more in savings today than they did pre-pandemic. So that's a big deal. Their peak was $2.4 That's kind of like where China is right now. Uh, they've got over two trillion U.S. dollars, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, and we, as owners of Alibaba, are the toll taker for that two trillion dollars that they have over there. But even in the U.S., they've still got 1.4 trillion dollars. Savings are, in fact, coming down. Um, uh, but the consumer balance sheets are stronger than ever, and there's still 1.4. Debt service as a percent of disposable income is near historic levels, so you can see it here, going all the way back to the 70s. Um, and uh, the U.S. consumer has significantly delevered since the great financial crisis. Uh, U.S. consumer debt to GDP stands at 76%, well below the peak in 2007. They had 99% uh, consumer debt to GDP. So that's really come down. People have de delevered. They're more responsible now. They've got savings. They have less debt. They refinance the debt that they have at much lower rates in previous years. Uh, so, so they're, they're good. And that's another reason delinquencies are still well below pandemic levels, um, at, um, 
1.6%. They're now 2.1% versus 3.7%. That's credit card delinquency rates. All consumer loans uh, are at 1.9% versus 3% pre-pandemic. So the underappreciated byproduct of consumer running down their savings is they're headed back to work. When we think about Chairman Powell's goal, this is important, uh, to bring down wages through increasing unemployment. There's another way to achieve that goal. And the other way is to, to reduce wages is through an unexpected increase in the supply of labor, uh, which we saw in Friday's uh, non-farm payrolls jobs report. The labor force participation rate unexpectedly hit the highest level since before the tightening cycle began. Okay, that's uh, where the um, uh, tightening cycle began in about March. Um, and tied for the highest labor force participation rate since the pandemic began in 2020 at 62.4%. So we only had one other month where the labor force participation rate was this high, and that was very early in 2022 before the market sold off. Uh, it dipped down. Now it's back up to those levels, and it's starting to, you know, move toward uh, pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, it's not out of the question if savings comes down that we could get back over 63%. And that is a monstrous amount of new supply, uh, maybe one and a half million people, you know, have, yeah, give or take, um, that would be back in the labor force. And that gives employers more, you know, wages are not going to go down, but, but they can stop going up, uh, at the pace. And that, that solves Powell's problem of having to actually throw the economy off the cliff to slow down uh, wage escalation if all this supply comes back on now that people are running out of uh, out of uh, savings. So this is a big deal. And what, what looked like from a tightening point of view to be bad news on Friday may in turn uh, turn out to be good news. Uh, they go back to work. And considering there are nearly two jobs available for every person unemployed, jobs are getting filled very quickly. So that's a good thing. This new supply of labor is starting to give employers some hints of negotiating power as we see the average hourly earnings coming down each month. Now you can see why this has been happening month after month after month since last May. And in real terms, wage growth is still negative. This is one more reason additional household members are getting jobs once again. So meaning uh, inflation is still above average hourly earnings increase. Now that's headline CPI. Uh, core is, is now below, but you know, people buy food and energy. That's like their basic, biggest expense. So, you know, as much as the Fed likes core, uh, that's not really helpful in this exercise. So one people need, one thing people need when they, when an additional household member goes back to work is another car. Now, historically, if you're running out of savings and things are bad, the last thing you're going to do is buy a new car. You're probably going to buy a used car. The problem is for used cars, even though the prices are coming down, your financing is going to be 5%. It's not going to be 5% anymore. It's going to be 7% or 9% or even 11%. Um, so it actually becomes cheaper to buy a new car because you're get now that the supply chain shortages are easing up and dealer inventories are building, you're starting to see one price cutting with Tesla and Ford, uh, et cetera. Uh, so that's a good thing. And they wouldn't be price cutting if they didn't have the supply. Uh, and number two, you're going to start to see dealer and uh, manufacturer incentives 
more and more where you're going to see advertising pick up in the market. You're going to start to hear more and more car ads. Uh, and you're going to see the 0% APR. So if you can get a new car that's going to be reliable with 0% financing versus a used car, which is going to have problems with 7% financing, even if the sticker is a little higher. And by the way, they're going to mark down those prices on the new cars and the EV incentives and everything else. Uh, you're no longer going to have to pay a premium above sticker like you did for the past two years. You're going to start to get a discount as the supply comes in, as as competition comes on. So you get a discount off a of sticker. You get zero or a couple percent APR in a seven or nine percent interest rate environment. It's an absolute no brainer. And that's what's going to continue to help Cooper Standard. And you're going to see those IHS numbers uh, start to creep up back towards 2017 levels over the next couple of years. And the operating leverage in the business that we own is going to be monstrous. And in no world would in the private markets anyone ever sit down to the table with us and talk about buying the company for $100 million or $60 million it traded down to uh, and assume the debt. Uh, for, for that price. I mean, they would have laughed you out of the room until you got up to maybe a billion dollars. They'd listen to you because it was a two and a half billion dollar company. And it shows you the magnitude of the operating leverage in the business. When those cars come back online, they're going to be minting money hand over fist. So, um, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, okay. So while 2022 had the lowest U.S. car sales in over a decade, January of 2023 had a sharp rebound in sales to near two-year highs as a result of supply shortages easing, pent-up demand, and manufacturer dealer incentives beginning. So you can see it's the same pattern every single cycle, okay? Whether it was 1980 when you had the Volcker, Volcker land, same thing. You just chop around for a little while before you take off. Whether it was, um, I guess this was 1990 recession, the SNL crisis, you, you start to grind up and then boom, you just, you just run up. Uh, whether it was the 2000, uh, recession when, uh, Munger made all of his money in Tenneco, he made a, uh, turned 10 million into 80 million, gave the 80 million to Lee Lu and turned it into a half a billion. So, Two chess moves in five years, 10 million into uh, 500 million. I think we're going to make more than an eight bagger uh, on Cooper Standard. Uh, and then we'll give it to ourselves and see if we can, you know, get anywhere in the ballpark. But uh, uh, either way, uh, by the way, and that's part of the art of experience. You know, I didn't read about Munger doing that trade the day before I found Cooper Standard. All of this stuff is in the repository of experience, education, hearing things, annual meetings, going out to Omaha, knowing the people. You know, that's when when Peter Lynch is talking about the art of investment. It's all of those, you know, it's the it's the stuff in the background for 20 years. It's it's the reading annual reports. It's Knowing these stuff, so when, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity, there's a lot of preparation that you can act and and see these cycles come out. Uh, But when you look at them and you zoom out and you see, well, this is this was obvious this was going to happen. And sure enough, it's the same exact pattern. And this will climb up. There's 2007. We'll be back there. 
and this thing will be doing seven, eight dollars and it'll be at a 10 or 20 times multiple or somewhere in between. And everyone will be getting excited about how the auto business we, oh, we've got, you know, 85%. Uh, this is going to be the story at the top. We have 85% ICEs. We're going to have to go to a hundred percent, which means we're going to quadruple the amount of cars that we've ever sold in history. Uh, because everyone's got to get into ICEs, uh, get out of ICEs and EVs, and they're just going to drop their ICEs and all buy EVs overnight. That's going to be the narrative at the top. I can assure you of that, and it's going to sound plausible, and it's going to sound credible, and you're going to say, wait, why am I selling the stock at $120 when it's going to go to $400 because... 85% of the people haven't even bought their EVs yet and we do the cooling systems and we do the windows and we do the blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's when I'll be laying off when everyone's excited. And all the people that listened all the way up and didn't buy any, they'll start buying at $80 and $100 and $120. Uh, I'll, I'll be helping you out. I'll, that, that I can assure you. So, um, all right. So at the end of last year, our podcast, we emphasized the concept that, quote, the last shall be first, and those groups and sectors that no one wanted to touch uh, were where the opportunity was, beyond Alibaba and Cooper Standard and Biotech for 2023. That has held true in spades as tech, communication services, and consumer discretionary, think Amazon, think semiconductors, uh, etc., have all outperformed in the first month plus of 2023, with the NASDAQ up 17.5% off of its December lows. Do not expect to see it continue at the same pace. Think about what that would be annualized, okay? So we're not going to keep going up 15% in a month. But it was nice that we spotted that out. We took advantage of that. Greatest start ever. Uh, but there, there's going to be consolidations. There are going to be fits and starts along the way. That's when all the bears are going to come back in and say, see, we said fade the rally. We're going back down to the new lows. Triple break putt, despite the fact that their ball is already in the sand trap. Uh, and the big money is going to be made in locating opportunities under the surface. Like we talked about last week when we showed you 220 stocks that, you know, half of them you could just weed out because they're losing money. But all you need out of there, and we've got them, is 10, 8, 10 stocks that still haven't moved, that are high quality, uh, that are cash generative, that are growing, that are temporarily impaired, not permanent impaired. And you can make a ton of money because if not for 2022, those opportunities wouldn't exist. So we have our vintage from 2022. These are going to be the 2023 vintage. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's very exciting. So stock by stock, company by company, still tremendous amount of opportunity in 2023, but they're not going to stay there forever. I mean, every day I'm just, I'm just praying for red because I've got new money to put to work. And thanks to the new, uh, new money that came in. Uh, glad to have you on board, but, uh, we got to, you know, it's not going to, they're not going to wait. The train is not going to wait at the station forever. Uh, there's always something to do, but, you know, you don't get many 2022s, you know, worst four years in the last hundred years where you can really put, put sizable money to work, uh, and just, you know, set, set yourself up for the next few years as, as we climb the wall of worry, like we covered, you know, these things persist. So, um, so you can see here the performance by country, by sector. What was everyone super hot and excited on uh, at the end of last year telling you to buy going into 2023 was energy and materials. What's the worst two performers? Energy's down 2% year to date, 2.2%. Uh, what did no one want? Consumer discretionary. Automobiles up 43%, by the way. No one wanted them. Uh, consumer discretionary up 17.2% year to date. Remember, we just, just go to hedgefundtips.com. 
click on podcast or click on videocast. Just click a date. I mean, it's, it's, this stuff was obvious to everyone that listens to this and has been with me for some time and has learned how to think in this way. Um, which is why I make it a requirement for new investors. They have to have least listened to my podcast for a month or two before we talk about possibly investing because I want like-minded partners who think in the same way and this stuff is obvious too, so they know exactly what I'm doing. And here it is, semiconductors up 22.5% year to date. Media and entertainment, 23.4%. Everything that no one wanted, everything that everyone wanted, healthcare, negative 2.1. Think, um, uh, you know, stayed pharmaceuticals, stayed um, uh, insurers, et cetera, staples. People couldn't get enough of Coca-Cola or... Um, uh, the, you know, any staples, they were just bidding up to the moon. Uh, think about, and no one wanted discretionary. So, so you can see in black and white here or black, white, and blue, um, what everyone wanted that we were saying stay away from has underperformed what no one wanted that we were saying step into. If you're, if you're not buying at these levels, you're in the wrong business. That's what's working. That's what's going to continue to work. And that's what people are in position for. So they'll have to chase them. Uh, and when they get excited, and the same people who are pushing energy and materials after it already had their run are pushing discretionary and tech and semis and communication services. And that's a long way off. But when they start pushing it, that's when you want to lighten up. Uh, thanks to my friends over at RBC for sharing these slides, because this actually is a visualization of major markets and S&P sector cycles uh, showing what we've been talking about for the last few months. Um, and this is consistent with what happens coming out of bear markets. What fell the hardest in the bear market bounces the most in a new bull market, which we believe we're in. Uh, we're focused on what works in the early stages of new uptrends. And here we've circled them emerging markets. They've already taken off. You can see that they start going before the final bottom, which is when we were pushing them. Uh, Europe is working, which is why we wanted uh, some exposure in the UK. Then you've got uh, NASDAQ and technology, China, hello, <laughs> and then small caps and discretionary. Uh, so these are our focus areas and what not to pay attention to, energy, healthcare, all the state things, oil, staples, everything, utilities, everything that no one could get enough of. Uh, if you get more granular by industry group cycles, REITs, which we were talking about, I mean, no one wants REITs. I'm telling you, they were the worst performers. They're going to be good in the next two years. You, you watch. Tech hardware, autos, software, uh, semiconductors, internet media, retail, biotech, consumer. Uh, so these are going to start to really crush it now as we get. So look, just, just think about this in terms of the market. So here's 2022, okay, and where this stuff was working at the top. And then as you rolled over, pharma, food and tobacco, staples, Etc. Now that we bottomed and we're now coming through, you want to be in autos, reads, tech hardware, software, internet media, retail, biotech, consumer, semiconductors. This stuff's going to start to fly, uh, and everyone's still stuck in this stuff. So backward looking. More to come. This is from Bank of America. It shows these bullish divergences for those who are technical. When you have the market making new lows, but, uh, uh, RSI making new highs. It often foretells that's what the market is going to do next because there's not a lot of strength in that that second leg of selling. Uh, and it happens over and over and over, whether it's 08 and 09, 11, 12, 15, 16, um, and, and now. So we, ha we had the lower low in October, 
and then we have the bullish divergence in the RSI, and that usually bodes well. And while everyone's waiting for the next leg lower, what do you get? A year and a half where you just keep pushing higher, climbing the wall of worry. Everyone keeps calling for the next leg down, and you keep making new highs. Um, so here we are in terms of bullish sentiment. People also point to this like that uh, Bloomberg article did and say, uh, oh, my gosh, retail is now at 37.5% bullish and 25% bearish. They're getting bullish. It's time to fade it. But when we look at the long-term stuff, remember, yes, it's more bullish than it was. It's breaking out of this. But once it gets there, it stays elevated for years and years not years and years, couple of years while it climbs the wall of worry and you get these monster rallies. So um, as long as the bears keep saying fade it, it's going to keep pushing higher. As long as that skepticism is in the market. So when you hear that, be grateful because if, if they, if they were, if all the bears were converting, uh, you'd have a, you'd have a real problem. They're not. And that's what you need to have a consistent wall of worry uh, and let them keep shorting and keep getting chopped up death by a thousand cuts uh, and uh, and just watch on the sidelines as, as your holdings keep going up and you keep making coin. So, um, okay, so that's that. Uh, fear and greed is at 73, so it's getting higher. And look, this, these are prime to get these consolidations, et cetera, like we saw today and, and yesterday. And that's, that's just part of the game. Uh, but I wouldn't get too bearish because I, I think, you know, even – the National Association of Active Investment Managers up around 80. I think it might be 85. You look where it gets when when you come out of these lows, you spike up here and you'll get these little pullbacks, but then it stays elevated for a long, long time and they stay pinned between 90 and 100 for a year, year and a half while the market just climbs higher. Everyone waits for the next leg to drop and it just keeps pushing up because people are off sides. They had too much cash, like we had record cash going into the new year, which we talked about over and over. Uh, and this is the result you get. Now, I want to talk about earnings, equal weight biotech earnings, top 30 weights in the last 60 days. What happened with the cumulative earnings power? It was revised up by 1.72% in the last 60 days. These are the things you don't hear that if you do the work under the surface, you can deal with equanimity while the rest of the world is losing their minds with euphoria and despondency. You can know what you own, you can see what's happening, and you can take advantage. Uh, the, uh, non-equal weighted, the, uh, cap weighted IBB was down modestly 3.29% in the last 60 days. Um, if you're going to have a basket, I'd, I'd be in the equal weighted, but you know, this is, these are rounding errors. The key is this is going to start to work too. And you look, need to look no further than forget that noise. Just look at the cycle. So maybe we need a little more rally in the markets as we approach uh, new highs, maybe 44, 4,500. And that's when you're going to start to see biotech start to get a huge bid and play catch up. And it's, it's just like a slingshot after that. And you can't even catch it. So we're waiting for that. That's a little later. Where do you want to be now? You want to be in the, in the China, in the emerging markets. That goes first. The NASDAQ, that goes first. And then biotech comes on later. But when it comes on, it's literally like a rubber band slingshot. Um, Okay, so that's that. Uh, earnings for next year, that's what the market's discounting. 250, uh, still at 250. So now that earnings season is basically over, you, uh, what do we have? 4,100. So you're looking at about 16 and a half times multiple. 
very, very reasonable. And the Fed funds rate was over 6% from 95 to 99, and you had a much higher multiple than 16.5. So don't let anyone tell you that tech can't, no tech can work because you have a 5% Fed funds rate. Uh, history just doesn't bear that out. Um, the economic data. So today we got initial jobless claims a little bit more than expected. That's good from uh, keeping the Fed on their toes point of view. And continuing claims also ticked up, which is more in line with maybe that was an anomalous 517. But as long as you see the labor force participation tick up and the average hourly earnings tick down, uh, we're winning. And that's going to get the Fed, uh, as you've seen with Powell, kind of doing about face. He had his second chance to destroy the stock market this week and he didn't take it, which tells you that he knows what we all know. Inflation is coming down and he can't keep raising rates when you have a $400 billion line item going to $1 trillion when you have debt to GDP at 120%. The Volcker fantasy is, is collapsed. They're going to just run it at 3 to 5% for the next five years and keep talking hawkish so that our inflation expectations five years out stay anchored at 2 to 2.5 so our behavior doesn't change and it'll be a, uh, you know, kind of a perfect thread the needle. And if he does it right, he can go down in history as a hero and if he messes it up, he'll be the next, uh, uh, not Arthur Burns because he got loose too fast, but Arthur Burns because he overshot in the wrong way. Uh, and I think he's reading the tea leaves and acting appropriately based on his demeanor in his last two speeches, the press conference. And then this week when he spoke, he's threading the needle. Talk the hawkish, keep inflation expectations anchored, but you know, let it, let it run to the extent that it has to run. So that's, that's a positive change. Um, okay, let's go through some of the Ask Me Anythings. For those of you who um, are uh, are listening in and don't do the Ask Me Anythings, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who get a lot of value from the Ask Me Anything questions, let's get started. Brett uh, DeMont, a big thank you from Belgium. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for all the hard work on your podcast. I'm a Belgian sports teacher in high school, tennis coach, and father of four-year-old son. Side sports, I try to compound my spare money. I love listening to your podcast. You're my favorite. Reading, Thank you very much. Reading books and Belgian Dutch equity magazines. Okay. You've been very helpful with all your due diligence. I even copy your style in European companies with, with great success. I hope one day my portfolio becomes big enough so I can let you manage a part of it. Uh, in your pod, thank you. I, in your podcast, you mentioned that you would love it if we send your podcast to our friends. I say that I've been doing this from the moment I found you. Well, thank you very much. That does mean a lot. And that is the greatest uh, uh, compliment. Uh, how I found you was during coronavirus before, uh, when you were call, when you were calling the bottom at the end of March. Oh, so that was the article in Market Watch on March 19th, 2020, when I compared the S&P, the uh, Dow Jones fell 35% in, um, peak to trough during the Spanish flu, 1917 to 1918. And I said, we're already down over 33%. We're stepping in and buying stocks and market watch picked up the article and literally like the next day, the market bottomed. It was amazing. Um, I had sold my risk equities in January and was sitting on 50% in cash. I started buying back the stocks, but I was still afraid. Then I asked Google play to give me a hedge fund podcast because I wanted to know what they were doing. I ended up with your podcast and I've been addicted since then. You gave me that push to go all in with my 50%. I sincerely want to thank you for that. Uh, wow. Um, whenever you're in Belgium, I'll drop everything. 
uh, and can be your driver, tour guide, and fitness coach. I can use a fitness coach. Thank you. Uh, big thanks, Thomas. Uh, P.S. Sorry for my English. As a sport teacher, I don't use it very often. Probably never written since I said. That was a very, very nice letter. Okay, let's get to a, a question. Bob Johnson, uh, long-time YouTube question submitter, first-time proper AMA question. Okay. Uh, been holding... American Waterworks, AWK from October 2022 lows, and I'm up 20% year to date. Water infrastructure is a new investment theme for me with too many catalysts into the future to list, but the current eight state battle to avoid Deadpool in from Colorado River impacting Lake Mead and the Arizona, California areas have national impact. Balance sheet wise, it has gross margin high 30s, even a margin 40, 40s, market cap 30 billion, total assets of 27 has a negative free cash flow of 300 million, which is one of your key criteria for stock consideration. Uh, it pays a 2% dividend since the industry is slow moving and utility heavy with new innovation slow. I believe we're at the cusp of both demand for water and water infrastructure along with breakthroughs in such as desalination. I'm hoping you can take a look at the stock. If it's not your liking, would like your thoughts on the sector and future prospects. Um, thanks, Bob. So Bob, um, by the way, you picked up on number one. If they're free cash flow negative, I'm not interested. But let's look at it and see what we can learn. So I pulled it up. American Water Works. This thing has been straight up. It's up 18 times in the last 10 years, which shows it's a quality business and has some type of moat. But for me, I don't buy things that are up 18 times. I buy things that I hope are going to go up 18 times. Um, but... There are people that have different styles where that's all they buy because they say, obviously, if, it, if it's growing like that, it's because it has some specialized moat and therefore it's going to continue to do that in perpetuity forever. Um, you know, my first name's Tom, you know, they, they call it Doubting Thomas for a reason. Uh, so I always go in with a, a, a healthy heap of skepticism. But let's just look at the numbers. Um, you know, single digit return on capital. What are we doing here? Free cash flow has been negative. Cash from operations is positive, so they must be doing a lot of investing. Let's just take a look. Uh, American Waterworks. So their revenues are basically, you know, growing at a snail's pace. Um, their operating margins are stable in mid-30s. They're earning money. And their cash flow, cash flow operations is okay. Looks like a lot of CapEx. CapEx has doubled in the last few, yeah, almost doubled. Um, you know, their CapEx is growing faster than their cash flow. I don't love that. Um, And let's see, return on capital, single digits, equity is pretty strong. It's accelerate gross margin, mid 50s. I mean, there's so many other ways to make money. I mean, like, um, I don't, I think you'll probably be right about the story of water, but that's been a story literally for 10 years. I mean, I remember getting pitched on aquifers in California 10 years ago 
and they were like in a drought and and it still didn't get done so you you really have to have a political edge to know what catalysts are going to be unlocked because there's so many best i mean just watch chinatown if you want to know the story of water this has been going on for 1960 there have been droughts and there have been people who said i can solve your problem and there have been politicians that say no that's not how we're going to solve it so um my guess is this business will continue to do okay i put this in my too hard pile i don't see the asymmetry in this like it's it's it hasn't corrected enough where i get interested where it's like on the operating table and i can make a determination is it permanently impaired or temporarily impaired uh so i think you'll be fine i mean i guess this probably works its way back up to new highs and you'll get a dividend in the meantime but it's not the regulators are not going to let them get a hockey stick asymmetric reward uh and the regulators might screw it up as well like you saw with uh pacific uh, gas and electric in california where you know it could it could rain or snow and it's always the uh the utilities fault, um, you know, these uh, acts of nature, they cause them. It's it's unbelievable to me um, when they don't. Anyway, so they, they, I would I, I would not take a level of this risk for very limited upside. And and what you're saying about the demand for water and desalination, this is obviously known. I mean, the stock's up, you know, 10x in 10 years. Everyone knows that we need more water. Uh at particularly in those areas. So it'll probably continue to work because they have a moat in the area, but there's, there, there are better things to do. I think it's a, it's an okay idea. The negative cash flow, free cash flow is not a great thing from my standpoint. Um, you're probably better off looking at some of the REITs that have been beaten down, the highest quality REITs, so you can get yield and get a double, uh, which I, with, with this, I don't think, I don't think you're going to get, you're not going to get the same type of yield and you're not going to get a double. Uh, in a in a reasonable amount of time, so your IRR is material, and then if the government screws it up, you really got a problem because then you're taking it's called uh, return free risk versus risk free return. Uh, I think you're taking return free risk here, um, so it's okay if you want to have it in your portfolio like a T bill, and uh, but it's 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 not for me. So, but that again, that does not mean you won't make money in it. So. You've done your work. If you th if you like the story, then have at it. And uh, and I thank you for sending that in. I think it's it's well thought out. Uh, just not my cup of tea. Uh, Arthur interested in okay that I, I met with Arthur, so thank you for that. That was great. Marlin um, uh, asked me anything. How does the current geopolitical situation with China affect the investment in Alibaba? Thank you. Uh, it doesn't. It, it it's it's whether we send back a broken balloon or we send a balloon to them it's not, it's not like we don't spy on uh, anyway the the key is that relations are going to continue to be tense they shouldn't have been spying on us we should shoot down the balloon and any other balloons that they have uh, uh and we should gather intelligence and i'm sure they gather intelligence uh etc the the key is we just have to outcompete them which we're going to continue to do because we are innovators we're we're not we're we're innovative. We're going to continue to keep that innovation. Uh, you're seeing the moves that we're making in semiconductors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, as far as it relates to Alibaba, what happens between Biden and Xi and a balloon in the sky has nothing to do with how much the Chinese are going to consume from Alibaba in China. 
and how fast they're going to digitize their economy. Now more than ever, the more friction that comes from the U.S.-China relations, the more Xi is going to turn inward to ensure that he is driving consumption to make themselves self-sufficient uh, and really pushing the platform economies to innovate with AI. And that's why you're seeing, you know, these companies, Alibaba's not out doing uh, AI and Baidu and all the stuff you saw this week without the government's blessing because that's what they want. And the government figured out late last year that they need Alibaba and Tencent to achieve their goals, which is to recover fast, maintain the stability, create jobs, uh, grow, remain competitive globally because uh, as they lose access to other technologies, they're going to have to create them internally. And Alibaba is the type of company that's going to be a core beneficiary of that trend. So in, in the short term, it'll create volatility. In the intermediate to longer term, it creates uh, a greater dependence on Alibaba and the Tencent, and which is going to mean that they're going to have free lanes to just do tons of business. And we're going to, we own a piece of that uh, earnings power moving forward. So uh, this is, a, this is all, fine and it doesn't affect what, what happens if anything it accelerates what we're trying to accomplish in terms of the business not the short-term price which we don't care about which we covered earlier the business and over time price always catches up okay alan two uh alan woman two questions if you have time have you considered any of the cruise lines ccl seems to have some of the same characteristics as cps ccl you, you know royal caribbean credit markets are loosening up uh so you just have to look balance sheet by balance sheet. Royal Caribbean is doing a debt offering due 2030. Uh, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian are better quality balance sheets than uh, CCL. I'd just be a little leery of the dilution on that, but you could take a small small punt. Uh, and over time, as they generate cash, they'll buy in any excess dilution that they have, uh, et cetera. But I, I wouldn't be all in. It's kind of like buying airlines. I, I would look more at the debt first. See where the debt's trading. If you can get pick up some of the debt at like, you know, 70 cents on the dollar. I don't know where it's trading. But let's say, you know, you were going to put, you know, a million dollars into an idea. You'd buy like, you know, maybe 700,000 of the debt trading at a discount. Uh, and maybe 300,000 or maybe two, 250 of the stock. And then another 50 of long dated, you know, spreads with a five times EV. So you wind up with if you're wrong, you're right. And you still make a lot of money on the bonds between the yield and getting back to par. Uh, and then, you know, if you're kind of right, you'll get a double in the equity. And then you may get a three or four bagger in the uh, in the uh, uh, in the spreads. And that's how you take some of the risk out of the idea uh, from dilution and ensure that you preserve the capital and you have asymmetric upside uh, if you're right. Uh, you mentioned CPS becoming a very large part of your AUM. Do you plan to reduce or hedge? What would your plan be based on size of position, current stock price relative to current fundamentals, technical levels, et cetera? So this is where it says, you know, art versus a science. But there are levels where um, there are certain catalysts and certain check marks. So I'm, not, I'm not, obviously not going to give you my, my exit points because that's that's giving you intellectual capital that people are paying me uh, real money to, to obtain. But, um, you know, as a general rule of thumb, you know, if something is up five X, you know, you usually want to take a, a bit off, take your, take your capital off the table, and then you can 
press the hell out of the, the remaining 80% with no worries because you've already gotten all your money back and the, and the ride has just begun. Um, um, but the other consideration will be which accounts are taxable and which accounts are non-taxable. So, uh, you know, we've only been in this since May, so I don't want to create a huge tax bill uh, for a taxable account because we, you know, if we get a five bagger in less than a year, um, that's, a, you know, this is a high class problem. I got to be honest with you, but, um, and particularly because we know the long, like in the short game, you could get to five X and then it could pull back 40% in the short term. And it's like, Oh, I should have done this, but you would have paid that in taxes. So you just have to ride it out. If you know, intrinsic value is going to be materially higher you do that. Now, if it becomes an outsized percentage of the portfolio where it's just from a risk management standpoint, it's untenable, you have to be tax conscious, but then in non-taxable, um, you know, you can, you can shave down and normalize the size and that also frees up capital because, you know, it's a different story. You know, Cooper Standard from 30 or $35 may only be a three-bagger. Okay, so but from inception, that's a twenty bagger. That's that's a monster. But your calculus changes at thirty dollars than it does at five dollars because I can find many other investments. You know, like I showed you last week, that could be four or five baggers from here. So I'm trading out what's a three bagger from thirty into a five bagger that's just getting started. That makes sense because that's trading out pawns for queens. Um, but I don't want to take out too much of that because I do like to, to let it run. So my inclination would be after five, six, seven X, take off and take your principal off the table so I can push the rest, uh, until it's at the earnings power. And then I can make a determination. Is the multiple fair? Is it euphoric? Is it despondent? And, um, uh, do I want to, you know, am I seeing the signs that we're getting near a bubble when people say, oh, we got, 85% of the people are not AVs. They're all going to switch to EVs. This thing could be $400. You know, that's when it's like sold to you. You go, you go get the next 300 points. Uh, I'm happy with the first hundred. Have it, have a good, good day. Um, so that's that. Good question. Uh, next is Andrew. Um, I, oh, Drew, Drew Byrne. Thank you, by the way, for all your comments all the time. That's very nice on the YouTube. Uh, looking for potential multi-baggers. Grateful for your thoughts on Grupo Televisa TV. The Mexican telecom corporation is also operating in the U.S., 19 Latin American countries, and Europe with four national Mexican TV channels and various Mexican government broadcasting concessions. Income mainly via cable and cloud, sky satellite, uh, NFL, MLB, soccer, publishing. I mean, this uh, 20 programs in Mexico produce... TV, Televisa, Univision, world's leading Spanish. Uh, stocks down 45% in one year, 66% over five years. Revenue net income increasing, albeit slowly. Debt decreasing, EPS growing. There was talk of a recent merger with Mega Cable. Are you concerned? How concerned are you about debt financials versus forward potential? Uh, uh, well, the cost of capital has gone up, so you got we got, we'll take a look at it here. Um, just early research. Also, I've had a starter position in Teva for a while now, given the potential once it gets further past the opioid settlement. However, it has been really range-bound for a while. I think it could be a decent future multi-bagger, and its financials seem to be reasonable in circumstance. I think patience is especially required here. Grateful for your views. Yeah, I would I would stick with Teva. I think that'll be fine. 
Um, uh, obviously size it appropriately, but I think that could have some asymmetry as you look a few years out. Can't believe how flaky the markets are uh, and how why people are selling some great companies these days. Appreciate your super insights, uh, hedge fund tips, content, article of the week, key reads, etc. Excellent media appearances and responsiveness. I'm spreading the word also. Thanks and all the best, Drew. Okay, so let's have a look at Grupo Televisa. And then I think we're done, which is pretty good. Okay. TV. Here it is. Okay. Let's see what it looks like here. Wow, this is interesting. Um, people are probably worried about the balance sheet for it to look like this. Did the same thing in the early 2000s. See what the financials look like. Nope, not TVIX, TV. Do this in US dollars. All right, so the revenues have not changed in US dollar terms in 10 years. So it's not growing, which inflation adjusted means it's a declining business. Gross profit has declined in 10 years. Uh, their operating margins have come down from 26% to 21%. Their EBITDA has declined. Their earnings, net income, uh, this looks like a one-off. Up until last year, it had been cut in half. This looks like a business that's lost its way. Um... I think you're playing for a dead cat bounce here, if anything. Let's take a look at the balance sheet. All right, their cash is up, so that's good. Got $2 billion of cash, $2.6 billion of cash. Their debt has gone up a bit. It, they brought it down uh, from $6.3 billion to $5.2 billion, but it's still up 26 27% in 10 years so 5 billion long term you'd have to go through it and see when it matures and what they're paying on it now and what you think they would pay because if their interest expense goes up from call it 6% to 10% um, then you got to worry about being 
cash positive. I mean, let's see here. And balance sheet, your cash from operations is declining. Really fell off this year. So it's down 66%, but on a regular basis, it's down like 20% over the last 10 years. Cash from investing, change in cash. Free cash flow positive. I mean, the problem is you basically have a declining utility. And what you're telling, what you're, what you're doing here is you're playing for a dead cat bounce. Um, this is a trade. I think this is a trade to 15 or 20 bucks. Uh, now, the, if, if that, and, and the, I think that would work as a trade for 15 to 20 bucks, but I probably wouldn't take that risk personally. Uh, there are better things to do where I can actually not only get the trade, but keep holding it and make a lot more money. Remember, successful investing is not about what you do. It's what you choose, you know, what you don't do. Let It's a no-strike game where you can let as many strikes go over the plate that you don't swing and just wait for the perfect fat pitch. Um, I think your instinct is correct on this, Drew. I don't like the business. So what I would want to do is listen to management sell me a dream listen to the last 10 conference calls and especially the investor presentations and see if there's anything there I can hang my hat on on how things are going to change. Uh, maybe a management change, maybe a, a strategy change, maybe some type of streaming story or uh, whatever it happens to be. Um, and if I could get comfort that they were going to recover and, you know, go to 40, I mean, that's that's kind of interesting. I don't see it in the numbers, so it would, it would have to be new management with a track record of working magic in, uh, you know, like if they sent like Bob Iger down there, maybe maybe I'd be interested. Um, uh, but I think at this stage, all you got is a trade, and it may be a very good trade, uh, but that's not the game that, that I'm in, um, even though I think it'll work. So I, I like your I like your thinking on this. I think it's it's clever. I think it's going to work for you. And I'm probably not going to participate. But thank you for sharing. Thank you for everyone for tuning in. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.